And God will transform this world. He, he will bring moral order out of anarchy. The kingdom will be the Lord's. And he may chastise the church. He may allow the church to be persecuted. He may discipline you in your own life for disobedience. But if you're a true child of God, he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. This is Andrew Smith pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, uh, this evening I want you to take your Bibles and be turning to the table of contents. And I I tell you that because I want to preach a message tonight from the book of Obadiah. You can find the book of Joel, you can probably find your way to Obadiah. I was talking with some people in the back before the service and I said that... uh, the first sermon that uh, I hear from Obadiah will be the one that I preach because I've never heard a sermon from the book of Obadiah. But what I'd like to do our next couple of Sunday evenings together is walk through this book with you. And this evening I want to look at uh, verses 1 through 14, the title of the message, God's Declaration of War. And I want you to stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's word, picking up in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, all Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives and do not hand over his survivors in the day 
of distress. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and pure word. Please be seated and let's ask the Lord for help. Father, we are grateful for both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are grateful even for those moments where we come face to face with a very unfamiliar book, an unfamiliar prophet, an unfamiliar passage. And so, Lord, we pray by the Spirit's enabling that we would be able to bring Bible times into modern times, that we might understand how to apply this passage to our church, to our lives, and to our nation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The story behind Obadiah's prophecies really goes back all the way to the patriarchal period and the twin sons of um, Isaac and Rebekah. We read about that in the book of Genesis. Obadiah is really, I guess the best way you can look at it, a culmination of the battle between those two boys, a battle between Esau and his descendants and Jacob and his descendants, a, a battle between two kingdoms. A battle between two nations, the nation of Edom, which was Esau's line, his descendants, and uh, the nation of Israel, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah, who were Jacob's descendants. These boys battled all the way into adulthood, the scriptures tell us, but the battle really began in their mother's womb. Genesis 25-22, for example, says that the children struggled together within her, that is in, within Rebekah. And Rebekah was so concerned about this, she inquired of the Lord what this meant. And Genesis tells us, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Many of you have known twins in your life. One of the soccer teams that I currently coach has a set of of two different twins or or two sets of different twins from two different families. One set is completely identical. They look alike, they act alike, they talk alike, they play alike, and the only thing that you can tell the difference between them is the number on the back of their jersey. Distinguish that between another set of twins on the same exact team. They don't look anything alike. One is tall, the other is short. One is quiet, the other one wants to be the center of attention. They don't even look like brothers, much less twins. Well, the same thing can be said about Esau and Jacob. Uh, The older was hairy, the younger was smooth. The older Esau had a carnal appetite, the younger had a spiritual appetite. The older liked the outdoors, the younger was more domesticated. Uh, The older lived for the thrill of the kill and hunting, while the younger one was a shepherd. Uh, The older was favored by his father, the younger was favored by his mother. Uh, The older grew to love things of the world more than the things of God, while the younger loved God more than the things of this world. The older didn't appreciate the father's love for him, but the younger, although he wasn't the favorite of the father, yet loved and appreciated his father's heritage and especially his father's God. The older was Esau. His name means hairy, the Bible says, because all over he was like a hairy garment in the book of Genesis. But he's also called Edom, and that term means red because he stole his uh, or sold his birthright, excuse me, and the attending blessing in exchange for red stew that was prepared by his brother Jacob, we read about in Genesis chapter 25. Well, it was after that incident that these boys went in two polar opposite directions. Esau, the Bible says, was destined to be a man of open spaces. 
And he showed his departure from the faith by moving away and marrying Canaanite women, one of those being a daughter of Ishmael, a great enemy of Israel. He settled in, in this mountainous region in, in an area that was eventually called Edom, and his descendants are called the Edomites. While Jacob escaped for his life at his mother's advice because Esau sought his life, because Jacob, if you remember, had stolen the blessing by deceiving their father Isaac. And if you turn back with me to Genesis chapter 28, just quickly, we read um, what the scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter, it's not chapter 28, it's actually chapter 30. That tells us, nope, it's not chapter 30 anyway. Anyways, let me just tell you what it says. It tells us that Isaac said that he would basically pronounce a cursing on Esau. The blessing would go to Jacob. And when Esau complained about that, um, his father Isaac said, it's already been done. You're going to receive a cursing. Jacob, your younger brother, is going to receive a blessing. Jacob went and married a bride chosen from his own heritage and good stock. And so now these brothers began their families, two nations according to their descendants, which tells us at the beginning of our study this evening that genes are very strong. And the values in which we raise our children is extremely important. Because the Edomites were exactly like Esau. They became a warmongering people. They had a lust for riches. They would conduct various raids on caravans, carrying goods on a major trade route known as the King's Highway. And they would exact heavy tolls on people traveling on this road and steal their treasures and then run away to their caves and hide their treasures. They were like rogue warriors. The Israelites, on the other hand, those descending from Jacob, enjoyed the blessings of their covenant God. And uh, we read at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 1, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. And that is repeated in Romans 9 by the Apostle Paul. The book of Obadiah is a tale of two brothers, a tale of two nations. And as these brothers went in opposite directions, one running away from God, one running to God, we see their descendants following in their train. The Bible even describes this in the book of Ezekiel as an ancient hostility. Uh, the Bible says they warred in the womb and then they warred outside of the, the womb. And we read about Edom Later in Scripture, when Jacob returned to the land of promise, years after being away with his father-in-law Laban, Esau came out to meet him from Edom, where he had settled with his family, also known as uh, Edom or Seir. And then Edom also comes up again in the story of the Exodus. You might be more familiar with, year, with this. After years away from the land of promise, God delivered the Israelites and they fled and they sought safe passage from the Edomites. And even though Moses was extremely gracious, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 20, he essentially begged. He begged the Edomites to allow them to pass through. The Edomites would not allow them to do that. 
And then later the war continued. David conquered the Edomites. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And from David through Solomon's reign, the Edomites were subservient to the descendants of Jacob. In fact, Scripture says that David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And then he put garrisons in Edom, that is forts, and all the Edomites became David's servants. 2 Samuel chapter 8. But God's promise came true. The older would serve the younger. And yet throughout Edom's history, they tried to constantly gain the upper hand on Israel. They would join alliances against Israel. They would fight against Israel. For example, in the 800s BC, they they fought against King Jehoshaphat. And then they defeated King Jehoram later in the 8th century. Finally... Judah was able to conquer the Edomites under King Amaziah before Edom then finally broke loose again under King Ahaz in the 7th century BC. And eventually, Edom became vassals to Assyria in the 700s, then vassals to Babylon in the 500s. Major powers, they were always joining themselves with powers that were against the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. And so it's likely that Obadiah was a contemporary with Jeremiah. He was writing about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians where they burnt the temple to the ground in Jerusalem in 586 BC. But who was this Obadiah? Well, as I said, this is the shortest book, or maybe I didn't say it, but let me say it now, the shortest book of the Old Testament. In fact, Obadiah doesn't provide even a time and place of his writing. He doesn't even tell us here in the opening verses where he is from. We know he's a prophet because we have to reconstruct the events and we know that he was speaking to the southern kingdom of Israel at a time when the Edomites had an assault um, against Jerusalem. We read about that in verses 10 through 14. Now some think the events of Obadiah describe some events that correspond to the Edomites' involvement in a battle against Israel in the, kings, in the days of King Jehoram. This was sort of a joint um, Arab-Philistine invasion in the days of King Jehoram. But most commentators believe, and I think for good reason, that Obadiah is prophesying to the people of God and specifically to Edom, to the pagans, surrounding the time period in which the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. For example, Psalm 137 verse 7 says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, that is the day when they attacked it, how they said to the Babylonians, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. They were cheering on the Babylonians. Or Lamentations 4.21, O daughter of Edom, to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and be stripped bare. That's God's judgment on Edom. They would drink the cup of God's wrath. And perhaps even more importantly than that is Jeremiah. Jeremiah, as you well know, prophesied for some five decades to the southern kingdom, and and Jeremiah actually speaks about God's judgment against the Edomites. In Jeremiah chapter 49, we read, In verse 9, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? That's almost quoting exactly what is said in Obadiah. Verse 10, but I've stripped Esau bare. That's the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. I've uncovered their hiding places. He's not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed and his brothers and his neighbors. And he is no more. 
This is the prophet Jeremiah. And so this is a very important time in the history of Israel. One commentator said um, that Obadiah is the most minor of the 12 minor prophets. But by that, he doesn't mean that it's the most unimportant. The word minor simply means brief. Major prophets refer to the larger sections of the prophetic writings in the Old Testament. So this might be a minor prophetic book, but it has a major message. And here is the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to encourage God's people, listen to this, that no opposition can frustrate the advancing of God's kingdom. That's the purpose of the book. In fact, in verse 21, it says, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's really the message of Obadiah in a nutshell. And the main purpose follows the main theme. The main theme is what we might call the poetic justice of God on the day of the Lord. And the way this theme is brought out is Obadiah highlights a principle. It's called lex talionis. You're familiar with it, even though you've maybe not heard that terminology, it simply means an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so it's the principle that the punishment fits the crime. And we see throughout the book of Obadiah the principle of lex talionis. We see that the treachery committed against Judah by Edom will result in treachery against Edom by her allies. We see that because Edom robbed Judah, so Edom herself will be robbed. We see that Edom did violence to Judah, and so Edom will perish by the sword. We see that Edom sought the destruction of Judah or the southern kingdom of Israel, so they will eventually, the Edomites, be utterly destroyed. We see that Judah is dispossessed by Edom, and so God will be sure that Edom himself will be dispossessed. This is the theme. And following this theme of God's poetic justice, that the punishment will match the crime, uh, that God will right all moral wrongs in history are several very comforting truths. First of all, it tells us that God is sovereign over world history. He's in control not only of the details of your life, He's in control of the newsfeed. Secondly, this book teaches us something about God's moral justice. I just said it. He will right all wrongs according to a sovereign timetable. It may not feel like that day to day, but the Lord will be faithful to do that. Third, it reveals to us this book, the theme of the day of the Lord. The the day of the Lord is referred to some half dozen times in this book. And the day of the Lord refers to God's judgment on Edom, but remember that Edom typifies or symbolizes the final day of the Lord's judgment on all sinners. And fourth, this book teaches us that God's enemies, again typified in Edom, can never ultimately thwart God's hand in history. God stands before time, God stands behind time, God stands in time, God is here with us tonight, and so you may ask the question, sometimes I feel like God isn't there, or sometimes you might wonder how the wicked prosper and the church is persecuted, or you might wonder, does God recognize and will he ever rectify the suffering of his people? Well, the message of Obadiah is for you if you have those questions. And it is a somewhat unique prophetic book because it is actually, as I said, a prophecy directed to Edom. But it is given to God's people as Scripture to be an encouragement to their souls that you can trust God in times of crisis. 
You can trust God in times of suffering. You can trust God when the success of our enemies seem to have the upper hand. And so the message of Obadiah is a message for our day. You mean to tell me that God sent the Babylonians to conquer the southern kingdom for their sin? Yes, he did. But even in the midst of that judgment and that chastisement is the mercy and the grace of God. That, that hope and encouragement for God's people will come because God will avenge his enemies. He's not forgotten his covenant people. And God will transform this world. He, he will bring moral order out of anarchy. The kingdom will be the Lord's and he may chastise the church. He may allow the church to be persecuted. He may discipline you in your own life for disobedience. But if you're a true child of God, he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. In fact, it's both true that Esau sold his birthright for some stew, but it's also true that Jacob stole his birthright by deception, by deception. It's true that God had chosen Jacob, but it's also true that Jacob from the very beginning lacked trust in God's promise. Even while he was in the womb, afterward his brother Jacob came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. You see, God's covenant blessings are meant to be received, not grasped. We are meant to trust God. We are meant to trust His salvation, to trust His ways, to trust His sovereignty. One theologian says this about Obadiah. He says, The oracles of Obadiah has interpreted the prophetic messages as the promise of God's coming rule, which will overcome the evil intent of the nations, even Edom, and restore a holy remnant to its inheritance within God's kingship. God will judge the world. God will keep a record of wrong done to his people. God will administer justice throughout his creation. God controls um, the destinies of all human governments. The principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. God's justice, his poetic justice will be fulfilled. So I don't know where you're at this evening with the Lord, but I know where our nation is at. We are at a, a period of really national disaster. And so the book of Obadiah is a book for Christians in the United States. In the moments of deep fear, this is where our theology not only becomes practical, but it becomes powerful to give us hope. We could be home watching the news and fretting, but no, we're in church to sit under the instruction of the word of God, to encourage our hearts, to edify the saints, and to have our faith strengthened by the message of Obadiah. Now, I want to look at the first 14 verses because in these first 14 verses, Obadiah gives to us very simply God's declaration of war on Edom. And the oracles of this prophecy can be broken down into three parts. First, we see the declaration. Secondly, the devastation. And third, the degradation. And I want you to know before you even begin to take notes that this message applies to us here and now in the present. Remember, Edom typifies all evil nations. Edom typifies all wicked sinners. Edom typifies all wicked governments, even the ones God may use to chasten his own people. So let's look at the declaration, the devastation, and the degradation. Number one, the declaration. 
the declaration of war, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. I mean, the brevity of the way Obadiah opens his book is striking. This is almost like an emergency email. He is literally writing as Jerusalem is under attack. And before he reveals God's declaration of war, he stops long enough not to talk about himself, not to talk about his testimony, not to talk about where he is from. No, he says, notice at verse 1, this is a vision of Obadiah. This is something that I saw. This is a hazon, a vision is the Hebrew word, some sort of divine communication from Yahweh. Because who this letter was written by is not as important as where it came from, and the source is God himself. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but man spoke from God as they were carried along. And this prophecy that Obadiah gives is a vision that God gives him concerning Edom. Notice verse 1, Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. This is a message and a declaration of war that is not rooted in some bitter personal vengeance. This is divine justice at work. And as we have seen, the history between Israel and Edom We saw that it began as a personal rivalry and vengeance uh, between Esau and Jacob. But now God is going to enact divine justice. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now Edom was a small country that was dependent upon Babylon. They were a vassal to Babylon. It's also referred to as Seir in the Bible. It was a territory bordering on the northeast of Israel, running uh, south all the way to the, the Gulf of Aqaba. And on the east of Edom was a desert. So Edom, the territory, was some 20 to 30 miles wide by 100 miles long. What you need to understand about the country of Edom was that it was rugged, mountainous terrain. And there were trade routes that, that ran through Edom the king's highway being one of them. And what the Edomites did is they hid away in their caves. They would control the area by exacting heavy tolls on foreigners. And then they would raid those caravans passing through on the king's highway. And because of their, their natural topography, they were able to escape to fortress cities in the mountains unscathed. In fact, the center of population of Edom was surrounded by red sandstone cliffs rising some 5,000 feet above sea level. So you had the city of Taman, you had Bozrah uh, to the west, tucked away in the sandstone highlands, these sort of natural fortresses. You had the city of Sela, which later became known as the city of Petra, which was at the center of Edom. And Israel had many enemies that came and went. Think about it. The Israelites fought the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites, the Persians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. But it was always the Edomites who were their most constant, hostile enemy. And so this declaration of war was approved and decreed by God himself. That's what you need to understand. This is divine vengeance. So Obadiah goes on to say, we have heard a report, the King James says, we have heard a rumor from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, rise up, let us rise against her for battle. 
This is amazing language because God is giving the battle cry for the nations and he's going with them. He says, rise up, let us rise against her. God is in an alliance with all of these other pagan nations to go against Edom. This is a sovereign conspiracy. And as Isaiah says in Isaiah 34, 5, For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. That prophecy is being fulfilled as Obadiah writes. In Exodus 15 and verse 3, it refers to God as a man of war. Well, this God, this man of war, is going to war. And I would just stop and say this. As we go through Obadiah, there is a personal application, an ecclesiastical application, and a national application. This message applies to you concerning your personal enemies. Do you trust God? Do you pray for your enemies? Do you pray for deliverance and trust that God will deliver you? Secondly, there is an ecclesiastical application because the church always has persecutors. The church always has defectors. The church always has false teachers. Are you protecting the good deposit that's been entrusted to the church? And third, um, there is a national application because God, and I'll say more about this just a little bit later, God promises to protect nations that identify as Christians. But God not only declares war, he declares the outcome of the war. Notice verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. Imagine this, the Edomites who came from big brother Esau, God says, you might think you're big, but you're too big for your britches, and you're going to be made small. In fact, you are going to be utterly despised. That is God's declaration of war. And that takes us now to the devastation of war in verses 3 through 9. And this devastation is going to involve a total collapse on the one hand and a targeted conspiracy on the other hand. Notice, first of all, in verses 3 and 4, this total collapse. Verse 3, Obadiah says, The pride of your heart, speaking to Edom, has deceived you. That is very interesting to me because it was pride that filled Esau's heart that demanded his brother Jacob owed him a meal because he was famished. And here the Edomites are just like their father Esau. They prided themselves, I think, in the security of their their natural fortresses in the mountains because verse 3 goes on to say, Oh, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Well, that's just pride. They're filled with pride. Arrogantly presuming that they are untouchable because of their defense systems of the mountains. Edom was undefeated in war, but it's not because they were big and mighty. It's because they were rogue warriors that attacked and then ran and hid in the mountains. In fact, there is one city, I mentioned it earlier, referred to as Petra. That's what the city eventually became known as. It was actually a lost city. For some 1,000 years. I mean, this is the stuff like Indiana Jones dealt with, except it's real stuff. It was a real lost city that was finally discovered by a Swiss explorer who had to bargain with the Arabs in the region to get to the place he thought Petra was located. And he found it. And this is what Burkhart said, this Swiss explorer. He said that Petra could only be entered through a narrow and winding canyon called a sick. 
It was about a mile long and only about 15 feet wide with towering mountain walls. There was a tiny stream that winded around and as you walked through, you would discover ancient pavement, an aqueduct, ornate carvings, caves that served as homes. And then when one reached the end, Burkhart said you would see a huge building carved into the face of the rock. It was a temple rising some 130 feet above the canyon floor. And then as you pass that, you would enter into Petra itself in a valley that was one square mile full of homes, full of a treasury, full of caves. In fact, experts say that because of the narrow entrance, it only took a dozen men to defend the city of Petra and where Edom was located. Now, these Edomites were prideful. They had perched themselves on top of the mountains in their nests, As high as the stars, notice verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars like you're untouchable, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. They were like eagles. And in the Bible, an eagle was a metaphor for strength and freedom. Uh, But they were not only like eagles. Sadly, does this not sound strikingly similar to Lucifer? who said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. This is satanic. It is sort of attitude of thinking you're untouchable. But that's what they were. Because you see, the heart of the human problem is a problem of a heart filled with pride filled with arrogance, like Lucifer who thought he had the right to be equal with God and greater than God, Uh, like Esau who thought he had a right over his brother to the birthright. Listen, on a personal level, power and prosperity will destroy you. It has that potential. Power and prosperity can lead to a pompous attitude where you are set toe-to-toe, face-to-face against God himself. And although these words are to one wicked nation, we should take note in our hearts and our minds, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. And this is how serious it is. God scoffs. He literally laughs and mocks Edom. Notice verse 3 again. You who say, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, God says from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, there is a a pattern throughout Scripture that speaks of God's judgment on cities and on countries. And we should take this very seriously. For example, you remember what Jesus said to the city of Capernaum, his headquarters for his Galilean ministry. He said in Matthew 11, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you because they rejected Jesus. They rejected all the miracles. But here we see Yahweh 
Israel's covenant-keeping God promising a total collapse of this nation. Pride led to their fall. Uh, She thought she was lofty, but God says, I'm going to bring you low. You're going to fall from your perch in the heavens among the stars. You are going to be brought down like Lucifer, the son of the morning star. Now, many of you are familiar with the story of the Titanic. And I've actually been to the Titanic Museum in Orlando, a very interesting uh, exhibit. History tells us that before the Titanic left from Southampton for her fateful maiden voyage, one passenger, a lady by the name of Mrs. Albert Caldwell, asked a crewman if it was really true that the Titanic was unsinkable. And you know what his reply was? He said, God himself could not sink this ship. Famous last words. That was the attitude of the Edomites. God himself can't bring me down, shaking their fist in God's face. You see, pride is frighteningly deceptive. But Edom's devastation not only involved a total collapse, it also involved a targeted conspiracy. And this is a God-engineered conspiracy we see in verses 5 through 9 that involves, first of all, her enemies stealing her treasures. Notice verses 5 and 6. God, through Obadiah, says, If thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. In other words, Obadiah says, there's not going to be anything left. Your enemies are going to search your caves high and low for all the treasures you've stolen from others. And they're like thieves, and, uh, thieves but not like thieves in the night. Because notice verse five, 5, if thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, how you would have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? The implication is, this isn't like thieves in the night grabbing what they can and running away. This is a complete stripping a raping, a pillaging of the land. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? The implication is no. They're not going to leave anything. You're not going to have anything left. Now, the reason I believe very, very firmly that this is taking place during the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, not some other battle in Israel's ancient history, is because Jeremiah says this very thing. I I quoted earlier, Jeremiah 49, if grape gatherers came to you, Would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places. He's not able to conceal himself. Can't hide himself in his caves. His children are destroyed. His descendants, his brothers, his neighbors. He is no more. He even says, leave your fatherless children. They're not going to have a dad. These are powerful rhetorical questions in verse 5. Proverbs 14, verse 34 says that God exalts a nation. And we also know that he brings nations low. Let me ask you a question. Whatever happened to Egypt and Greece and Babylon and Rome and the Soviet Union? What's going to happen to the United States? God is king above all of these nations. And he will, to an exact T, hold every nation culpable for her sins. And this is God's judgment on Edom. Her treasures are plundered because she had crossed the line. I mean, God's patience only goes so far. And her allies stripped her vines bare. They left the cupboards 
completely empty. But God's targeted conspiracy not only involved stealing her treasures, it also involved scorning her treaties. Notice verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. This is poetic justice that I was speaking about earlier. Edom stabbed his brother Israel in the back. And so now, because Edom has betrayed Israel over the years, now God is going to take Edom's closest allies and use them against this nation. In Bible times, the worst form of betrayal was done by those that you ate bread with. Verse 7 says that, those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. This is probably... Um, a reference in a sense to Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus, Jesus saw that as being fulfilled in Judas. Edom was like a Judas. In all those confederations and alliances that Edom had with the Moabites and the Ammonites and Tyre and Sidon, they would now turn against Edom And they would tear up those treaties. All bets were off now. Why? Because of God's sovereign intervention, thus saith the Lord through the prophet. And I want you to understand tonight, there is no arms race in missiles or technology. And there is no sophistication of diplomacy that can stop God's judgment on any nation. There is no nation that is above God's judgment. But this God-engineered conspiracy that's targeted to Edom, that, that wreaks this devastation, not only involves her allies stealing her treasures and scorning her treaties, but third, slaughtering her troops, verses 8 and 9. Notice verse 8, will I not on that day, there's that famous um, word re- referring to the day of the Lord, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. You see, troops in the military are only as effective as their leaders allow them to be. But what does Obadiah say? He says in verse 8, all the wise men are going to be destroyed. And all their understanding I'm going to take out of Mount Esau. The mountain of wisdom that Edom had compiled, was in accordance with their father Esau. It wasn't God's wisdom. And so Obadiah references the fact that these Edomites are like Mount Esau, the mountain of Esau's rebellion and free thinking, wisdom according to the world, would come down on the Edomites like an avalanche. Their carnal and worldly wisdom would come crashing down upon them. Esau thought, He was freed from God because he sold his birthright to Jacob. And so the worldly wisdom of Esau and his descendants, they think that they are free and they can do whatever they want. But you see, human pride of the nations, which Edom typifies, is the type of pride that thinks you're smarter than God or wiser than God or stronger than God or faster than God. Not even someone like Elon Musk is anything. He's like a pimple compared to God. God could pop him in a nanosecond. And he may be smart. And he may have good ideas. And he may invent wonderful things. And he may be a good guy in some sense of the word. 
But God will always destroy the prideful. And God will use Edom's allies, whatever their advancements are in wisdom, whatever their advancements are in technology, he will take their wisdom away, he will take their knowledge away, and this is always evidence of God's judgment upon a nation. Think about China. Think about other nations that rip the United States off. I think the Bible commentator Albert Barnes put it best. He's an older commentator, but he said this, and I quote, he said, the people of the world think that they hold their wisdom and all God's natural gifts independently of the giver of them, namely God. He, by the events of his natural providence, shows, God does, through some sudden withdrawal of this wisdom, that it is his wisdom, not theirs. And then people wonder at the sudden failure, the flaw and the well-arranged plan, the one overconfident act that ruins the whole scheme, the oversight. They are amazed that one so shrewd should overlook this or that and think not that he in whose hands are the powers of thought supplied not just that insight whereupon the whole depended. Well, that was Edom. Prideful. But when wise counselors are removed in ancient times... Guess where the failure shows up? It shows up on the battlefield. Notice verse 9. Obadiah says, And your mighty men shall be dismayed. Why? Because I removed all the wise men from your nation. Your troops were confused in battle. Old Teman, that's a city, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Men on the battlefield make foolish decisions when they don't have wise commanders. We've seen that In our own history, we see how weak our military is today. Or think back to World War II. Clearly God, for a bunch of other reasons, was on the side of the Allies. Because toward the end of the war, Hitler began to make foolish strategic decisions. His wisdom turned to disillusionment. And the result was defeat. Verse 9 addresses Edom as old Timon or Timon. That was the name of a descendant of Saul, Genesis 36, 11 tells us. And Timon is also synonymous with the Edomite nation. It's just a nickname. If you remember Job's friend and counselor, Eliphaz, he was a Timonite. He was one of the wise men that God says here, from that line, I'm, I'm going to destroy. And also history shows that men from the east, men from Edom, would travel all the way to Solomon to gain wisdom because he was the wisest. They learned at the feet of Solomon. And God says, all that learning I'm throwing away. Matthew Henry says, and I quote, it is vain to depend upon mighty men for our protection if we have not an almighty God for us, much less if we have an almighty God against us, right? Even Job said, he, that is God, leads counselors away stripped and he judges those that he makes fools. Verse 9 says, every man from Mount Esau, both sages and soldiers alike, will be cut off by slaughter. It's amazing. But you see, the greatest thing we can do tonight, if we think our nation is collapsing underneath our feet, if we think that God is judging our nation, here's what we need to do. We need to lay our treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal for where 
your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. Matthew, Matthew Henry says again, and I quote, A nation is certainly marked for ruin when God hides the things that belong to its peace from the eyes of those that are entrusted with its counsels. In other words, a nation that has leaders who are not wise and who are foolish is a mark of God's judgment. And the commentator John Phillips says this, and I quote, Neither sages nor soldiers could have saved Edom when God decreed that its domains would become a slaughterhouse. Obadiah could see it all in his vision. The marching troops of Babylon, the traitors within the gates of Edom, the people trapped at the end of the ravines, the plunder and the slaughter. The prophet saw it and he told it, and so it was. It's not just the Bible that tells us this. It's secular history that tells us of the destruction of the Edomites. But Obadiah has a threefold message. First, the declaration of war, verses 1 and 2. Second, the devastation of war, verses 3 through 9. Finally, third, the degradation of war, verses 10 through 14. Really, verse 10 is the key. Obadiah says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. This simply describes the reason that God judged Edom. Edom had broken God's law. We spoke about it this morning. The law of brotherly love. Edom, that is Esau, beginning with him, did violence to his brother Jacob. And so did Esau's descendants, the Edomites. And what is the result? Utter degradation. Utter shame. The Bible says, shame shall cover you, speaking to Edom. And you shall be cut off forever. That reflects that the seeds of Edom's moral character were sown by their ancestor Esau, who sold his birthright of covenant blessing for food. Now we need to understand that God does not save according to lineage. But we also must affirm that the gospel is passed down through lineage. You live an ungodly life, don't expect your children to live godly. What does verse 10 say? Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. That means your children are cut off from the blessings of God from the smile of God. I mean, who would deny after reading verse 10 the principle that um, what you sow, you will also reap, Galatians 6, 7? Esau sowed what his descendants ended up reaping from top to bottom. And while we're on that topic, to be fair, Jacob did better, but he didn't do much better. Remember, he, through deception, got the birthright. He was grasping on Esau's heel, as it were. And yet God would save a remnant of Jacob, but Esau's descendants would be cut off forever. Why? Because they violated the second great commandment. Esau did not love his neighbor as he loved himself, did not love his brother Israel. And notice how they violated this law of brotherly love. Verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, that is Israel's, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. The two nations were brother nations because of their ancestry. Deuteronomy 23.7, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. God says that to Israel. And Israel followed suit. They were gracious to the Edomites. The Edomites did not return that favor. Verse 11 says they stood aloof. That means they turned a blind eye to the Babylonians destroying the temple, plundering the temple. 
I mean, they did exactly what Cain did to Abel. You remember God came to Cain? And, and Cain said, well, am I my brother's keeper? That's essentially what the Edomites did. They saw this destruction. And they stood aloof. They were culpable for their sin. Proverbs 17.5 speaks directly to Edom's guilt. He that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. I hope tonight that you don't take joy in the sin of others. I hope that you don't take joy in the chastisement of others. I hope you don't take joy in the failure of others. It is a Christian principle that we are to weep with those that weep. And and we are to rejoice with those that rejoice. Edom was a bad brother. But worse, he didn't just turn a blind eye. He gloated. Notice verses 13 and 14. God gives a list of prohibitions to Edom. He says... um, In verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. I mean, eight times God says, do not. Do not gloat, verse 12. Do not rejoice, verse 12. Do not boast, verse 12. Do not enter the gates, verse 13. Do not gloat, verse 13. Do not loot, verse 13. Do not stand, verse 14. Do not hand them over, verse 14. These were the crimes that they committed against the southern kingdom of Israel. This is how they violated the second great commandment to love their neighbor as themselves. They sinned, first of all, in word. Because if we sort of do a reconstruction of the events, this is sort of what happened. Imagine the Edomites swarming down from their cave homes with shouts and hollers echoing off the canyon walls. They begin to watch before then cheering on the destruction the Babylonians are wreaking on the Israelites. And then at the crossroads, they not only sin in word, but they sin in deed. As these Jews are trying to escape to the mountains, the Edomites would stand in the narrow gorges to prevent these Jews from escaping to their fortress cities. And these poor Jews were turned back and chased into the hands of the Babylonians. Women and children were destroyed. For a moment, picture a fleeing mother with her children, the husband already dead. And she runs out of the gates of Jerusalem and her young son suggests that they, they flee to the red sandstone cliffs. No one will find us there, mother. So they find an open hole in the gorges and they begin to pass through the darkness. And the boy says to his mother, if we get all the way through onto the other side, we'll be in the city of Petra where there are many caves we can hide in because he had explored those caves a few weeks before. So the mother encourages the younger children to continue a few more steps and they will be safe. But as they begin to enter the city of Petra, the men of Petra, these Edomites, block the entrance of the narrow gorge, chasing this family back through the darkness of the gorge to a sword that pierces their mother and pierces their children and their bodies lie in the canyon. They were cut off, as verse 14 says. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. That's exactly what they did. This battle began with two brothers. And it resulted in a battle between two nations. Where God says in verse 10, shame will cover you. You will be judged. 
So what do we take from the story of Esau and Jacob's descendants warring against one another and this prophecy of doom that Obadiah gives the Edomites for the people of God to comfort them? What comfort do you have this evening? Well, I told you there were three points of application, a personal application, an ecclesiastical application, and a national application. First of all, personal. Do you trust tonight that God will take care of your enemies in due time? There may may be people that slander you. There may be people that seek your harm. There may be people that plot against you. But you know the counsel of God's word is to make sure that we trust God. And how do you know that you are trusting God? You know that you're trusting God because you're not seeking revenge against your enemies. Remember what Paul said in Romans. He said, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And you can trust those words this evening. You can apply the message of Obadiah to your own personal life and whatever you're facing. But secondly, there's an ecclesiastical application. That is an application for the church. The church has many enemies today. There are many ideologies, false theologies, wicked governments, wicked people. But do you know that you're not like Jacob? You have a brother, an elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has your back. He has the back of the church. In fact, he's not just our brother, but we are his bride. And the Bible is so clear that it is only the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, that will protect us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. We are to trust that God's word is our greatest weapon. We we are to trust that by God's divine abling, the weapons of truth, God's wisdom, the weapon of the gospel can demolish strongholds and demolish the counsels of the carnal and wicked people. That when they strive against the gospel and they strive against God's word, God's truth will always prevail. God will always rectify all wrongs. He is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over the church. So you can apply the message of Obadiah um, not only to your personal life, but also to the church life. This ecclesiastical sort of application. And then third, there's a national application that we can apply. I want to read a verse to you, and I'm sure that you've heard this verse. You're familiar with it. It says this, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Do you remember that God told Abraham he would spare Sodom and Gomorrah if ten righteous We're there. Do we have 10 righteous in this nation? I hope we have more than 10 righteous in this room. Of course we have more than 10 righteous. See, that's the grace and the mercy 
of God. You need to understand that the United States of America was built on a Christian foundation. And most people in the United States still have a Christian worldview whether they recognize it or not. The enemy is not winning as much as we think he is all the time. There are ways in which the enemy has made inroads, but what does 2 Chronicles 7.14 tells us? It says that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin. Judgment begins with the household of God, therefore repentance must begin with the household of God. And there is no such thing as a 100% Christian nation this side of heaven. Not until God establishes universal righteousness in His consummated kingdom. But God does acknowledge nations that humbly repent. And God not only acknowledges them, but He exalts them. He also brings low nations that rebel. You see, God hasn't changed. You might not be familiar as you are now with the message of Obadiah. But God hasn't changed. He hasn't changed in the way he operates toward nations, toward the church, toward individuals. The question is, will we change? Will we repent to avoid his chastisement? Will we repent as the people of God and seek his face as we proclaim the gospel, trusting that the kingdom belongs to the Lord? Verse 21 of Obadiah. The kingdom has been inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has ascended and he is seated at the right hand of God. We are in the session of Christ. He is president. He is king. He is ruling. He is reigning. And it matters not what the enemies around us may do. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be destroyed. Jesus said, I will build the church. Uh, God will not lose one of his elect children. They are eternally secure. So what was true for the descendants of Jacob and God's covenantal blessings in the Old Testament are true for New Covenant Christians today. So may the Lord seal these truths upon our hearts and may we give Him glory and Him glory alone for His merciful and gracious sovereignty. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the message of Obadiah. We're only halfway through understanding this message, but our hearts are full Our minds are full. We see in the Holy Scriptures the promises of your covenantal blessings to your people. And we also see those who depart from your family, those who depart from the blessings of the covenant, maybe a wayward teenager or a wayward child or even a wayward adult who grew up in the church. They are inviting the cursings of God upon themselves. And we have also seen, Lord, that you will bless Churches that are faithful to truth. You will bless nations that uphold the standards of your word. That humbly seek your face. You will exalt nations, Proverbs 14 says. You will bring nations low. And we've seen that in the example of Edom. Help us to be a pure people. Help us to be a humble people. Help us to be a people that seeks to honor you and seeks to honor your truth. We pray all of these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. 
Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.